0: You can do whatever you want. They give you all this choice. But at the end of the day, we're doing like three things.
1: Brought to you by Island. This is the Cloud Bytes podcast, where we bring together panels of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bites in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about the concerns customers have with the predictability of the costs in the cloud. My name is Brian Knudsen. I'm the director of cloud market intelligence for Island, and will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes a lot of deep experience in managing IT costs. Let's start with having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important when considering concerns
2: about cost predictability in the cloud. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. My name is Scott Lowe. I'm the CEO of Actual Tech Media. I've been doing this IT thing for a long time. My initial thoughts around managing costs in the cloud are that it's kind of a constantly moving target that needs continual evolution of tools to help us do better.
0: Hi, my name is Christopher Cusick. I'm CXI from the internet, and you can find me at thepragmatictech.com. At least one of my thoughts around uh, costing the cloud is we don't know what we don't know. But definitely, what we find is nobody really knows what they're paying for until they see that first bill, and then they think they know, and then they see that second bill, and, and it's a spiraling snowball at that point. So we try to help bring a little clarity to that, and that's definitely the part of the conversation here is helping to have people realize what that picture really looks like.
3: Hey, good morning, good afternoon to everyone listening. My name is Sam Woodcock, based in London for Island. I'm Senior Director of Cloud Strategy, so I work on new and existing products for Island, and also work with our customers to understand what they're looking for in the cloud as well. So I guess my thoughts are, obviously, it's a complex landscape, a lot of different providers in the space for customers to consider, each with their own pricing models, a lot of them being relatively complex, a lot of different transactional costs and other elements to consider. And it's a very complex world. And I think we've seen the rise in companies actually helping customers along the way to understand their cloud costs and optimize that. And I'm gonna go into that in a little bit more detail later on, but we've seen a lot of customers really looking to optimize their existing costs because they're not happy with the current situation. So I think really interesting discussion we're gonna have today.
1: Thank you all for joining me. In the live polling I did at various VMUG meetings in 2019, The ability to have predictable costs was the second biggest concern the attendees had. Having transparency into the charges they're accumulating can help. And we have a whole other episode dedicated to that topic. But that takes time and effort to stay on top of. There are plenty of horror stories about out-of-control costs based on variable per-use costs. Businesses are used to getting a quote for equipment, paying for that, and having little or no variable costs after that. So customers will go through a pre-sales investigation of cloud providers, similar to what they do with on-premises equipment, and that will include some estimation of costs. Sam, what's the likelihood of these estimated costs will be what they're actually charged each month?
3: I think it can be varied based on, obviously, who you're working with. Obviously, so that whole evaluation process is important. Also, understanding whether you're going to get help from that cloud provider directly or whether you need to work with a managed service provider or a, a value-added reseller who can help you along the way to understand that from a pre-sales perspective. So, again, I think the mileage varies. Obviously, with the bigger providers in the market space, a lot of their model is about self-service and self-service kind of access and enablement to utilize the platform. So if you're using one of those routes, then you can end up potentially with factors that you didn't think about as part of the cost perspective. And I think what we've seen, actually, when we looked at a survey in 2020, a State of the Cloud report, one of the biggest initiatives, in fact, the biggest initiative, was actually optimizing the existing use of the cloud in terms of cost. So I think from my perspective, again, mileage can vary, but it seems to me, and from my experience, that customers do somewhat of a job of understanding the cost of the cloud, but then they're surprised by elements as they then get into the use of that cloud and then as they grow and scale. So I think it's a constantly evolving piece and something that should be a great consideration for organizations. And I think one of the challenges that I've seen from my side is that often, if you're coming from an on-premises world where you buy hardware and you're looking at compute and storage, it can be pretty simple to understand the cost elements of that platform. And you go into the cloud with that mindset that you're looking at things like CPU, memory, and storage, and then that's all you need to think about. But the reality is with a lot of the bigger providers in the market space related to cloud is that there are microtransactional costs related to network bandwidth, both ingress and egress, the transactions between virtual machines, the network and storage usage. So, for example, with storage, obviously thinking about the performance performance, The number of transactions the number of IOPS all of these things in addition as well as things like support and security potentially can be overlooked in this evaluation process and are really key to understand how that cost is going to grow and scale. I think also a lot of folks look at what their current project is but maybe don't look towards the future and how that might expand within the cloud and then obviously relate to cost that they see within that provider so I think, yeah, a big topic. I think really good discussion today. I think from our side, obviously, I work for Ireland. We developed a tool. We tried to take a little bit of a different approach to the cloud. So rather than every individual piece of the infrastructure, the bandwidth, the networking, the security, the support being an additional cost that you have to understand and predict, we actually take an all-inclusive model where you simply need to think about CPU, RAM, and storage back to the traditional approach. So Love to hear everyone else's thoughts, but I think it's definitely an area that folks should spend a great deal of time from a pre-sales perspective, really understanding current and future cost.
2: You know, when we think about a cloud provider assessment, to Sam's point, I mean, iLand takes an all-in approach where you look at some things pretty simplistically, which is good, I think. But obviously, every cloud provider, they have vastly different ways that they're charging for their service. When you look at you know, AWS and Azure, there's 537,000 approximately different places you can have fees added. That number may be plus or minus. But then you look at an Island, where we're looking at it more simplistically. You look at a Wasabi, they're, you know, just charging for storage. They're not charging for egress. So it becomes really hard, I think, to do almost an apples-to-apples comparison sometimes, especially when you're considering some of the cloud providers that may have charges you don't even know existed until you get into it and get that first bill. So I will say, and I'm not trying to make this an advertisement for ILAN, but I will say I appreciate the more traditional-centric approach that Island brings because I think it makes it an easier analysis. But yeah, I do think that the analysis overall, when you're looking at a vendor landscape, is, can be pretty tough to actually get through just because of the sheer variety of opportunities that are out there to have different charges assessed. Scott, egress, what's that? What's backup? What's storage? Exactly. That's one of the big challenges, isn't it? Well, especially
0: when a lot of people live in a CapEx-driven world where I bought the thing, therefore I can use the thing, and suddenly they're being thrust into a heavily OPEX-driven world, it changes things significantly, especially if their business model is not oriented around that. So while in the past, they considered things like you know license agreements, software, and people to be soft costs and costs that were driven on OpEx model. And they figure things like storage, compute, and all the other elements of their infrastructure to be hard costs that they buy once, and then they deal with every you know five years on a cycle, or longer, because if you bought the thing, you could still be using that thing 10 years out. Suddenly it turns up on its head, and now it's a whole different dynamic and a different world that they have to deal with. It always kind of starts with egress. Like, ingress is free. Yeah, but egress is expensive. Like, I didn't know that. And suddenly the procurement team needs to become the network operations monitoring team. And their whole world is drastically changed just on that one little word of like in versus E. I don't know what's happening here. That's usually where a lot of these conversations begin is, you know, how are you consuming what you're consuming? Where does it reside? And, you know, what is that cost going to be looking at that? Because if you aren't understanding your ingress and egress costs, That's the beginning conversation.
2: Well, particularly when you're looking at the potential for a recovery event having to take place, it adds a, especially if you're using the cloud as your backup target, getting the data in isn't too bad. Getting it back out becomes a, what just happened when you get that first invoice, if you didn't expect it. And it adds a whole different level of concern when a data loss event does occur that requires restoration from backup. So yeah, it has some challenges. If you know that going in, okay. If you don't, it can be a pretty nasty surprise. Well, we like to refer to that as the
0: hotel Cloudifornia effect. <laughs> That's <a crazy>
2: great <laughs> The
0: problem of, uh, you know, you can put all your data in there and it's no problem, but it's never coming out because it's going to cost you more to get it out than it's going to be worth it. So let's move all of our applications and services to the cloud.
2: You know, one of the things on that, to that note, You know, we hear about multi-cloud a lot. All these organizations are going to be adopting all the clouds and just bouncing applications around between them based on what's cheapest. And that's just not going to happen right now. Maybe someday, but if you've got to pay a massive egress fee every time to bounce between AWS and Azure and back, it's just the reality of having, you know, 16 different cloud providers that are all, you know, where you're moving workloads based on cost is just not happening, although we see it in some literature.
0: That is kind of the case where like Oracle tried to make their stand with OCI and saying, you know what, we're not going to charge you for egress. But they say that today, but I don't know if that's what it looks like tomorrow, as well as even if they're not charging you, somebody's getting charged. Right. It's happening somewhere. And it's just a matter of, you know, where, where the envelope gets pushed around.
2: I think that's one of the other things to keep in mind here. Um, maybe we're going a little bit off topic here as far as, you know, specific cloud costs, but terms and conditions become part of the overall procurement process. And one of the realities is when you own the infrastructure to a point, you control the terms and conditions for how that infrastructure is used, deployed, managed, operated, and eventually disposed of. I mean, you have some variable software license terms you have to deal with and some, you know, all that good stuff that comes along with that. But once you basically put your infrastructure, and again, I'm going to go back to the phrase that we've all heard on someone else's computer, they control the rules and Obviously, there's master services agreements and stuff like that. But at some point, you're starting to lose some control over what can happen to you later on. So those are some things that as you're looking at an investigation of a cloud provider, you have to look at how they can change the rules on you later so that you don't end up in a situation where you're forced into those egress fees because the cloud provider you chose just became too expensive for you to continue to operate. Yeah, and if I'd
3: add a point there as well, I think that kind of lends itself towards the point where it's important to see Kind of what cloud providers are available in the space that allow you to potentially reserve resources or elements of the cloud service for a fixed period of time right so you can lock in those costs and obviously make them a little bit more static and predictable from your side as well and i think the other point i would like to make as well is that i think when folks move to the cloud there's this assumption that everything is protected from a data protection perspective and also from a security perspective and i think the reality is with things like microsoft 365 or other services That's not built in. And so it really is important in that pre-sales phase to understand those roles and responsibilities, but also that shared responsibility model that a lot of those cloud providers publish because often it directly tells customers that they're responsible for their data, responsible for data protection. And those are things that will be additional costs that you don't want to be surprised by later on. So again, Obviously, I'm going to be talking from the island side, but we tend to build in these things because we know that these are elements that enterprises need for their data and applications. Again, just a really key consideration
2: to think about from a pre-sales side. You just mentioned something critically important. We actually, Tech Media, literally like a week ago, ran a quick poll to our audience around the issue of Office 365 backup. And the number of people who don't understand that Microsoft is not backing their data up On a long-term basis is staggering. I'm in the industry, so I kind of get it. But the number of people who think, well, if it's in Microsoft, if it's in 365, it's backed up, I don't have to worry about it, is pretty concerning, actually. There's a lot of education that has to happen still beyond what's in the agreement.
1: Yes, totally. You know, this is one more example of several situations we've talked about where costs become unpredictable because there are hidden costs that you may not have considered when you first made the move. You've said, hey, we're done with this whole exchange thing. Let's move to the cloud. They move to 365. And then a year later, they're like, they lose some data. And they're like, okay, we'll restore it. Well, we don't have backups. Or you know, whatever Microsoft provides by default isn't enough to pull that back. So those types of hidden costs can sneak up, even though the costs from the cloud provider may not be changing. There's something else you realize that you need. And I think this can be a big part of the concern customers have there. So. Christopher, how should customers go about uncovering these types of hidden costs in a cloud provider model that, you know, may come up later on that they may not be told about at the beginning?
0: Well, that's the big challenge there, right? It's the perspective that some of these are, quote, hidden costs. There absolutely are some hidden costs. We've kind of beaten that egress horse up a little bit, right? But there's a lot of these other costs. I like to refer them to like the non-sexy costs of cloud. Things like backup, storage, DR, like what we've just been kind of hitting on. These are all things that there's a a very common misperception for a decade plus that the cloud provider is doing this for you. They're backing my stuff up for me. They're taking care of it for me. They're setting up multi-replicated zones, like that. And I would always have these conversations. I'm like, did you pay for that? And they're like, no, they're taking care of it for me. I'm like, 100%. They are going to take care of you if you, A, pay for it, B, configure it, C, test it. Like those three things, if you can make sure that you've tested it, paid for it and configured it, it's probably being done to a certain extent. Just like, oh, I set up a storage repository for all my critical customer data. I'm like, awesome. Did you encrypt that? Oh, they're encrypted for me. No, they don't. You've got public buckets sitting out there on the internet. So I always kind of align this back to, and I've talked about this on other calls, and I've talked about this in numerous presentations for at least a decade now, and it's the Excel is greater than emotion effect, which is to say, if you believe this is being paid for, this is covered, and like, okay, let's throw it into Excel. Let's say, hey, I've got compute. Okay, cool. How much is the compute costing? All right, this is the value. This is what I see for my thing. Great. How much is the storage costing? That's a value we can define. How much is your backup costing? Oh, that's free. No, it's not. No, it's free. It's not free. Uh, no, but, uh, Office 365, they're backing my stuff up for free. They're not. Google G Suite, they're backing my stuff up for free. Also, they're not. So when we start looking at each of these little pieces and we start loading them into Excel, and then we, we add those values up, we start to see what our real costs are. Just like the when it comes to running a complex service, like uh, how much are you paying for support? Oh, support's free in the cloud. Uh, no. Have you used that? I guess. <laughs> so it's it's a matter of like kind of bring all these parts together and not to not to beat on the island horse, but it truly is kind of true that cloud partners can help identify and control costs and also help to rail in what some of these costs are. Because if you're not using a partner to help you identify where you place things and ensure you're doing all the right things, or you're not using tools available like out there in the general populace, cloud health being one, there's some other players in that space that help you identify this is what my costing looks like today and here are ways I can kind of optimize that and use it more efficiently, then it's the wild west. It's buying, you know, subscription to equipment and going and running your services But you're only doing the things you're doing if you're doing them. And anything else beyond that is it's smoke and mirrors or, you know, hopes and dreams, basically.
2: So I don't think that there's a such thing as hidden costs in the cloud. There's costs you haven't yet discovered. And the reason I say that is the cloud providers that are out there are very transparent about what they're charging you for. It's just not understandable to a lot of people. So, you know, they have these massive pricing. I mean, if you look to, you know, Microsoft's Azure sites for where they tell you how much they're going to charge you for things, good luck figuring out in a predictive way what you're going to get charged. It's going to take absolute trial and error. Those costs aren't necessarily hidden, but you may find some things you didn't expect to be charged because you didn't understand what the language was in the pricing guide. I don't think that's uncommon at all. Christopher, do you think that's accurate or not? that's 100% accurate and
0: not to i i guess this kind of goes back to the whole mibibytes versus megabytes argument yeah. right and that is a that's not a hidden cost but it's a misnomer of misunderstanding that most people you know feel free if you're if you're listening to this you've never heard of a kibibyte go look it up and you'll say oh my god i hate you for now knowing this information and that's been a problem inside the same document in the storage industry of how we represent
3: storage and storage, you know, capacity.
1: Our essays just had a refresher conversation about that
3: yesterday. I think from my side, I think it's about taking time and taking expertise, right? I think mirroring a lot of the points we just made there, it's you're making a big choice as as an organization to move to the cloud. It's a big seismic shift. Often most of the folks we're speaking to are VMware-based and they're looking towards the cloud. Obviously, if they're utilizing potentially AWS or Azure, that's a completely shift or completely different mindset shift, right? Understanding terminology, looking through the countless pieces of documentation, I believe Scott just mentioned, right? All of the pricing information and detail is out there, but you kind of need the understanding of what the terminology means in the first place to then translate that through to how costs will occur within the cloud as well. So I think it's about taking a great deal of time about understanding the outcomes the organization is trying to achieve in the cloud, And whether that can be achieved with the same technology that you're leveraging, say, i.e. VMware, with potentially a VMware-based provider, or whether you need to shift to those larger providers to make a more seismic shift in how your applications are architected. But then, once you've made that choice, really bringing in people that have that expertise, that deep-level knowledge of those platforms, so that hopefully they can guide you through and avoid some of the pitfalls you find yourself in as well. So I think, again, taking time, taking expertise, and really truly understanding that will hopefully put you in the best foot forward to successful outcomes as well.
0: Well, actually, Sam, that, that touches on a point that I want to cover a little bit. And that is, is understanding what you're paying today, right, for your on-prem workloads. And actually, irrespective of where they happen to be sitting, And that is kind of a big thing, because unless you happen to be a digital native or born, in the cloud type of you know business or model usually you're working with some legacy infrastructure legacy applications and legacy costing around that and even if it's something that there's some cost that you paid for there is a cost to that i mean you've got a real estate cost you have a you know power utility and other types of costs that are going to be you know living on day to day and understanding how that's going to factor in play in the big picture so using tools that can actually give you some that visibility into your on-premises costs and how you can actually align and apply that to, hey, if I take this workload to the cloud, what's it going to be looking like? And whether you're using like an automated tool, you mentioned like the VMware tech customer environments, you know, use like vRealize operations to give you that visibility into that. Or if you, the typical route we go for not doing something like that is we're using Excel. right? You know, if it's, it's an Excel or
2: an abacus, I mean, those are kind of the two options. The number of organizations that don't run an Excel across the world you can count on less than one hand. Yeah, I mean it's just that pervasive. But this idea of wanting to get you know granular with IT costs isn't new, but it's you know it's evolved pretty significantly. I mean in the nineties, which I'm dating myself there, I worked for a guy who it was in a higher education environment. He worked with another CIO at another college, and they developed basically a methodology to figure out per unit cost at IT at the time. How much are you spending per, you know, student, things like that. But it never got down into the transactional level on how many, you know, disk IO requests you're doing or how much bandwidth is being shoved between buildings and stuff like that. Today, you know, when we look at workloads moving to the cloud. It's a question of what are you moving? I really feel like, you know, when we're looking at VMware-centric environments, the virtual machine is obviously as granular as most people get in that case. And you're going to look at that differently if you're moving it to AWS versus iLand, right? Because you're going to help them understand it better and they're going to have a whole world of difference when they move to AWS because they're not used to looking at things like that. So everything's going to look like a hidden cost, even if it's not. But if you have an organization that's building a brand new modern cloud native application they might want to look at it more granularly so they can control how they're going to scale their application and all that stuff. So I, I think it comes down to what you're actually moving to the cloud to make an assessment on what you could consider a hidden versus a non-hidden cost. Cause you know, like I said, if you're looking at things from a traditional legacy perspective where you're used to Ram compute and storage, you know, having all of a sudden pay for a, a bandwidth fee for something is sort of a foreign concept.
1: No, that's a great point because it is a completely different model So, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the what do you do to understand what the costs are going to be before you get there in the first place? Planning is important. Taking your time is important. But once you've jumped onto the cloud provider and you're starting to use their resources, you know, then you've got to watch for your costs. And some cloud providers provide real-time alerting. They provide month-to-date utilization metrics. They help you understand what those costs are going to be as we go along. So, Scott, can you talk a little bit about how important these types of tools are for predicting what your bill is going to be at the end of the month and how
2: customers can utilize those tools to avoid being surprised by that bill at the end of the month. So I see the bill that you get at the end of each month as a single data point, and it doesn't necessarily provide you with context, but it tells you what you've done that month. But what you don't have is the context around what it could have been if you take in a more critical look at the infrastructure. So if you're looking for something that, you know, where you can get a series of bills over time and build an analysis and a forecast around what you're going to pay, it's great. I don't necessarily see them as particularly useful when it comes to helping control cloud costs, though, because you may have oversized instances. You may have been better off paying for reserve instances, but you're not. And the bills don't always yield that kind of information or that kind of action for people. It tells you what you're going to owe based on current trends, But it doesn't help you do better. And so I think the bill is important to help understand what you're going to pay, obviously. But I think that a deeper analysis of the environment can help you do a better job controlling and ultimately predicting what the cost should be. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would say from our side, obviously, again, we we take a slightly different approach to the pricing against the rest of the market. For example, we do base our kind of our environment pricing and our usage based on the actual consumption of resources. And I think this is a really critical point across the cost conversation is that we're kind of taking that consumption-based approach so that as workloads can I consume more or consume less, that's what the customer is paying for. As you shift towards the AWS or Azure's of the world, you're paying for these instance sizes regardless of whether you use the entire instance or you use a small portion of the instance. You'll build for the entire usage, right? And so I think from our side, we tend to make sure that customers have that real-time alerting, that real-time utilization so that they can see costs as they happen and obviously make adjustments in real-time. And I think that's critical to be able to try to control spend as well. But I think obviously where it becomes important in AWS or Azure, for example, is to understand as you're getting utilization metrics to understand whether the workload could sit on a smaller-sized instance or a larger-sized instance and make adjustments as they happen so that obviously we can optimize that spend as much as possible.
2: Yeah, obviously the bill is going to kind of give you some insight into what you could do to help reduce or better manage those cloud costs. I like the Island approach, but basically Island is being proactive in helping customers not have to spend. I mean, organizations are hiring entire FTEs and multiple FTEs to do nothing but deal with cloud bills. And that to me just feels insane. I guess this goes back to having to hire a licensing specialist. I don't know. But if you're there you know, there's probably a better way to do it. I feel like Island, you're probably doing a better job helping customers pay the right amount for their infrastructure, for their workload environments than other services. Now, you know, I feel like if you look at an Amazon versus an Island, Amazon's basically, here's some scaffolding, go build your building. And with Island, it's kind of like, go use our building. And we'll just look at the end of the month at how much office space you use and charge you for that. Whereas at Amazon, if you took if you decided to build a whole floor by mistake because you didn't realize it, they're going to chill charge you for that whole floor. So, you know, obviously, when we go back to you know, the first point we talked about in this thing, when we took a pre-sales investigation of a cloud provider, those are important questions to ask. Because if you've got to a point where you don't truly understand that by the time you've gotten your first bill, something has tremendously gone off the rails. And you may not be making the best decisions possible for your organization
3: yeah i think that's a huge point i think one of the things that again we do from our side we built a custom tool that actually looks at the utilization of a customer's environment that's on-premises today so that we can actually understand the patterns of usage ahead of time right back to the first question about obviously hoping to avoid surprise costs and also providing an accurate estimation of cost and then using that sizing information to really make sure everything's right-sized in the cloud and then obviously past that point, making sure that we have the real-time utilization so that we can shape those workloads going forward. And I think that's really critical, again, if you're evaluating an AWS or an Azure of the world where you can, again, potentially utilize tools to understand the utilization patterns of your environment locally. Because often we find that because you bought, something from a capex perspective potentially folks are more prone to over allocation resources because they have them and then when they shift to the cloud and they just bring across those workloads exactly as they are then they can really ramp up their costs pretty heavily whereas i think if they spend a little bit more time from a pre-sales perspective in understanding the true usage of the resources that they've allocated then when they choose to then utilize instances on those platforms they can make sure that they're as right sized as possible to optimize that spend so again in it really points to the fact that you need to spend more time from a design side, and it really pays dividends when you then get
2: into the cloud itself. I guess it comes down to the old planning versus prevention meme, right? The more planning you do, the less correction you have to do later on. Well,
0: and Sam, you hit something really on the head that a lot of people don't tend to think about is they'll look at the historical characteristics of their application or their server as it sits on-prem. Then they'll say, all right, I need to size a particular instance to go move this into the cloud and then they go and they do that and then usually they ignore it after that point like it's been moved over there and not to see how well it's performing at that point and whether that is the right and appropriate instance it's a problem we ran into when we were moving from physical to virtual it's like all right this physical server has got 64 cpus you know two terabytes of ram and you know a petabyte of disk space great it's a DHCP server we're going to move that you know like for like into its new platform and it's That's not a good choice, right? Just because something is sized a particular way doesn't mean it's the right size for it. And if you just forklift, move things from one point to another, it's like taking an iPhone and putting on a pallet. You can do that. You can absolutely do that. It's not an efficient use of space, but it's something you absolutely can do. And when it comes to storing that space on a shelf or putting that workload inside of cloud instance, they're more than happy to take your money because these are not nonprofits they are more than happy to take the money for the service that you request, whether you're fully leveraging or utilizing it or not.
3: Yeah, and I think this is just reminding me of another point, which would be around kind of those instance sizes, right? There's a lot of choice in terms of instance quantities. I think over two, 300 choices of which instance you could go for. But I think it's really critical for customers to understand that, for example, if you need a certain quantity of disks, you may need to actually purchase a specific instance with more RAM than you need. Or if you need certain quantity of CPUs, you may only get that with a certain other one that requires additional RAM and storage. So again, back to the planning and the design phase, understanding the attributes of these instances and the limitations and the points where you have to move forward to a larger or smaller instance to get to the configuration you need. Is something you really need to spend a great deal of time if you're considering those environments so that, again, you can get to the configuration you need for performance, but it doesn't have a negative impact on cost at the same time.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a key in so much of what we do in IT that it shouldn't come as any surprise to anybody. But for some reason, you know, this concern exists. And I think a lot of what comes into play there is that, you know, no matter how much you plan, there's going to be some level of refinement as you go forward because things change when you move them from one platform to another. And to kind of summarize what we talked about, you know, the variability of costs can vary a lot from provider to provider. And the simple measures that we used for on-premises equipment usually won't work in the cloud. You know, there's a lot of nuances and changes that we never had to consider before, which really makes apples to apples comparisons really, really tough. And what that's going to require you is to look at, all of the costs, many of the what we consider hidden costs. And I like the fact that we were pushing back on that term itself is that, you know, we just don't always understand what the shared responsibility model is. And I use that word very purposefully because a lot of cloud providers explicitly call out what is their responsibility and what is the customer's responsibility. And being able to understand where that line is, you know, Microsoft explicitly tells you if you look at the responsibility model that they're not responsible for the protection of your data. They provide some tools for that. They know it's not what everybody is going to want. And so they will say that. They don't try to hide that from you. And it also is incumbent to understand what the costs are on the quote and making sure that you understand that the full context of what's included, what's not included in that and where those additional costs may come from. Again, they're not trying to hide those usually. They're just not always up front with them. And the way things move quickly, sometimes there's a lot of assumptions that go into it. It's all in the customer to really make sure that they've got everything that they need included in that. And it's a big change. So make sure you take your time to consider all of that or minimize the surprises. I'm not going to say you can eliminate them, but minimize those surprises. And know that as you get into it, the bill you receive at the end of the month is a point in time and that the trend data you see is making a lot of assumptions based on past performance. So controlling your costs really do require some efforts. And one of the quote-unquote hidden costs can come from the fact that You know, some cloud providers do have a tendency to have people create careers based on helping other companies control those costs. And some cloud providers may not have that. SaaS providers is probably a lot less of those nickel and dime type costs than you would get out of a platform as a service or an infrastructure as a service. So analyze what you're actually getting, what you're actually using, how you're going to be using it, what your future needs are going to be to make sure that you've got a complete picture of everything that's going to happen there. With that, let's finish off this episode of the CloudBytes podcast. Thank you to Sam, Christopher and Scott for a great conversation. Also, thanks to Island for making this podcast possible. Please check out all the episode notes, panelists' contact information, further information on this topic and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can also find our episodes on your favorite podcast apps. If you found this content useful. We'd appreciate you sharing it with your friends and colleagues and rating us on those favorite podcast platforms of yours. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the CloudBytes podcast.
2: I learned something about Comic Sans, by the way. Do you want to hear what it is? Yep. Yes. Apparently, Comic Sans is used so much because it's easy for people with reading disabilities to read. Mm-hmm. I've, yeah, heard that. I've heard that. I didn't know that until recently. I mean, you know, people make fun of it all the time because it's Comic Sans, but um, it's, a, it's an interesting little factoid.